Hello and welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, hosted by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Today's episode is special for two reasons. Firstly, it's one of the first that we've recorded in person, but also it's the second in this series, which is organised with our partners, Octopus, who back entrepreneurs of the future. None better who exemplify that than today's guest, Pujar. She is still a practising GP, founder in her own right, as well as being a partner at Octopus Ventures, heading up their health tech investment wing. And it's this latter hat she'll mostly be wearing in speaking to us today. Octopus believe that health investment is going to be one of the biggest five sectors of growth. And particularly when you consider the impact of the pandemic and how that has brought the health of us all so much more into sharper perspective, it makes for a fascinating conversation. They are also producing a report into the emerging sector of femtech, technology designed around the improvement of women's health. And that forms a large part of today's discussion. Whilst female founders attracting VC investment is already a well-known problem, femtech is an area that's been traditionally overlooked and undervalued, despite the size of the market. We talk about Pooja's fascinating career and how she brings together her knowledge of health entrepreneurship and finance. But first, we start in a bit of a topsy-turvy way by bringing the question that we normally pose at the end right up to the start. Pooja, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Hi, Jimmy, and equally nice to be here in person. If you could choose to go back in time um, to one point in history for 24 hours, um, when and where would you choose? So for me, oh, that's a really personal uh, question. Um, and I think I would go back to uh, the partition of India and Pakistan. And the reason being is that my grandparents are all um, from the region. Three of them had to flee. And I've kind of heard the stories um, from their eyes. My grandmother talks about, you know, listening to the radio, hiding under the bed. Um, when she was nine, the chaos in the streets, um, the the horrible journeys they took on the trains, how families got split, where they then got settled. Um, and so that moment of uh, migration, and obviously we're seeing that all over again um, now, uh, is something that I think um, I, I would have liked to have seen because it's, it's the kind of essence of probably what set and train in my family of, you know, why they came uh, to the UK, uh, why the most important thing was that their children and their grandchildren were educated, et cetera, et cetera. So when did your family come to the UK then? So my grandmother came in the 1960s. She actually came on her own, which is an unusual story to tell. And it was because my grandfather had a fracture, but there was a window of time that she could come. So she came here on her own, leaving her two daughters behind and set up a life for a year in South London. And then the family came over. Wow, it must be um, an incredible family history to, uh, to read about and, and understand and learn. Absolutely. And probably explains that, you know, sense of perhaps wanting to succeed in, in, you know, difficult times, being resilient. I always think back to, actually, could I do that? Could I move? Could I leave my children behind and move to another country and set up a life and feel proud um, to be British, which is, is what, you know, all my family feel. 
Yeah, uh, well, I can I can imagine. And so, tell us about your kind of route into the world of work, then. But you explain that that history there that must have quite an impact on on the kind of career choices that you took early on. Yeah, so there was a kind of running joke in the family that everyone should be a doctor. So, you know, very early on in your teenage years, you got the chat from from my grandfather explaining that it was a very noble profession. It was well paid, well respected, you know, and it was a kind of good thing to do. And actually, most of the family who have joined the health profession, of which there are many, have veered off and done extraordinary things. And actually, everyone who even hasn't you know, become a health professional has gravitated to healthcare. So it's something that people in the family, in our kind of friends, and I suppose now we can see it in society, it's become just such an important topic. People are very passionate about it. And we can see all of this opportunity to innovate in it as well. And actually, there's a mindset that you can wait for the system to do it for you, or you can now grab a chance and, and go for it and make that happen. And so I think everyone understands, or at least has a base layer knowledge of what a doctor is, and probably from quite an early age as well. Venture capital is probably not something that's as understood by the masses so much. Can you explain in your words what a venture capitalist does? Yeah, I think, look, the, the sector is evolving. So, you know, my view is a, a very current view, but I see venture capitalists there to bring capital into bringing the best innovation and the most disruptive solutions into the world and ultimately to back the ideas, the people and the companies that are going to change that. Within that is built a system around how you manage financial risk. So, there's a difference between an angel investor or an independent investor versus a professional venture capital outfit that's managing a portfolio. And I think that's the real learning curve that you go on, that investment isn't just a business by business thing. It is actually how do you take on your fiduciary responsibility to manage wealth and to manage money. And really for us at Octopus, how do you bring private capital into society's biggest problems? And that I see it in health is bringing, how do you bring public money and private money together and make that work? And how do you think your training as a medic kind of impacted on that? How does that lay the foundations for how you approach the business world? In my space in healthcare, look, there've been a lot of good generalist investors and there've been a lot of people perhaps who've gone down routes and bets where it just needed massive amounts of capital to bring it to life. And I'm very grateful that that sort of capital exists. But I think where we are in healthcare at the moment is that we are now looking at the more complex part of bringing these technologies to life. And biotechnology has always been very complex, but I'm talking down a broader spectrum around platforms and software and wearables and devices. And I think that space is getting complicated. One of the most complicated things about it actually is actually how do health systems and payers um, like insurers and so forth make these decisions and how do clinicians and healthcare professionals adopt technology? So that's what's complicated. It's not so complicated to maybe find a business and say, okay, well, actually, you know, this thing has got legs. It looks really disruptive. I can see how it works. It's actually knowing how would this fit into the system and who would be willing to use it. And that's where I use my skills. You know, um, I've been uh, seeing a deal this morning. Actually, I've been live texting an oncologist at Hammersmith, who was able to give me her view literally on text messaging this morning. So having this 
huge breathing network of people that can give you an opinion really rapidly is what I think brings a differentiated offer. And as a clinician, I'm also able to filter out that kind of negative bias. There is sometimes a bit of negativity about new things because it's unfamiliar. So we have ways of assessing that and doing enough examination and diligence of companies. So that's basically how, you know, I think that adds value. One of the things that excites me about what's happening in kind of health tech, if you think of the internet revolution that we've had over the last 20 years, predominantly a lot of it has been in the entertainment space. So Netflix, Spotify, two great companies, for example, over the last 15 years. But fundamentally, they are entertainment companies and we spend a fraction of income on that. Whereas healthcare, the market is so much bigger and so much more exciting. But as you say, there's a lot more reticence in terms of, you know, bringing technology into that space for some people because people are nervous about it. How can you help people? We mentioned it there in terms of the NHS. How can you bring people on that journey with you? So actually, there's a very scientific model to some of this that people like Trish Greenhalgh and colleagues from Oxford you know, have done a number of studies on how you bring technology and innovation into healthcare. And then there's all the hearts and minds that you have to be able to appeal and help people to understand their concerns. I don't think that clinicians naturally want to be blocking innovation. That's not really their mandate. In fact, in clinical practice, we see new drugs all the time and, and that sort of thing. Technology is just a little bit more novel. It's more that you become this guardian to preventing harm and and risk. So what we need is the time, space and resources to guide any adopting healthcare system or provider or clinician the time to see that innovation, to experiment with that innovation in the right way. And that's where we can we can kind of broker. And that's, you know, fundamentally, we believe that actually having these connections into the industries that we are investing into becomes a really, really important part of how we grow as a, as a firm. And one of the things that this podcast focuses on is asking people about their journey, but also key decision points. In it, with the pandemic, we've all had more time to reflect on, on what we're doing comes from a personal situation with me, leaving number 10 and working out what on earth you you do next. Did you have any frameworks in place to go from sort of being a um, a GP to doing more investing? You obviously did an MBA at Imperial, which is an interesting kind of career move for somebody in healthcare. It would be really interesting to learn how you went through those decision-making processes. And of course, you are still practicing as, as well, I understand. So I, I'm amazed how you managed to fit it all in, frankly. But I'm, I'm curious to know about those processes that you went through for it. The truth of it is, is that I started my career thinking I was going to be a general practitioner. That's what I had my sights set on. And what that allowed me was obviously to practice, but also to what general practice allows you is to run your own small business and that in my mind was where my target was and within your own sphere you could innovate to a certain extent was my perception. I think the reality of that and you know this with policy, financial constraints and then the day job of having to deal with the health demand that is to some extent getting unmanageable and always has been under pressure is that you you can't do that and I was in this constant period of frustration where I could see that 
we were doing things inefficiently. There was clearly technology that could help us. And that my biggest job was to get people to kind of believe. So I've been on this 10 year journey with my colleagues, friends, anyone who will listen, that actually we need to bring technology to the front line of healthcare. That has been my absolute vision around this and then found people who shared my vision. And that's really how I've ended up where I am. I think clinical work was, I love it and I can't leave it. And it takes a lot of effort to stay in it. But it's those patients who remind me all the time of what the innovation we need, where the need is, as do my colleagues. So it's something that's providing exponential reward to my life um, at the moment. But I was too frustrated, I guess, to stay and wanted to solve the problem. And as I moved through commissioning, consulting, and now in investing, I realised actually the power of venture capital is that we can bring this innovation into the front line fast. And, and I guess that's how I've ended up here. And we have a lot of medics that listen to the show, uh, not least occasionally my wife, uh, who is it? But obviously it's kind of, you know, the, the whole family is in it and, you know, you spend five years at university, so it becomes your kind of social group. So it becomes very, one of the things that I've observed is it becomes quite a tight knit side thing, which inevitably leads to sometimes a bit of group think and so on and getting those outside perspectives. How have you been able to keep breaking out of, of that and being involved in the technology side? And just how do you structure your, your week as well with doing practicing still now? I've been really lucky that I've had non-medics challenge me. So the first part of my journey of coming out of the healthcare group think was doing the MBA. So I wasn't sitting side by side with doctors. I was sitting side by side with all sorts of people and all sorts of businessmen and women. So that was the first part of the journey and then learning underlying um, education that I had never had access to. So that was the first part. But actually through my career, I've had people challenge that clinical mindset and say, well, what if it was like this? What if you're just following? And then I've also gone in the room and challenge my colleagues as well and say, well, how, what would it look like if we do things differently? And what would it look like if we manage risk like this? And what COVID has done is brought almost everyone to the same place, which is if we stay in the status quo, we do more harm than good. And I think that's what we were learning um, during COVID. We just had to get onto digital platforms we had to do something different. We had to change how we do clinical trials processes in, in developing a vaccine. And so everybody has realised that we have to change. We've got everyone on the same page. How fast we go ahead and do that, we'll see. But, you know, part of what I do is looking for those ideas that can go next. And how much of that venture capital investing is scientifically based? I think that's interesting of what you were saying. How much does the science underlay investment decisions that you're trying to make? Here, there is a lot of, you know, due diligence. So, and there's robust governance and investment committee. So there is a scientific organized structural process to it. When you come up a high, at a higher level, and I'm almost dodging your question here, um, is that whether you look at people's behaviors and how you feel towards those behaviors, or whether you look at the core science of the technology, Ultimately, we're looking for patterns. So we are looking for patterns of, of behavior and how a business comes together and business models. 
and pricing strategies and go-to-market strategies that all fit together. When that comes together, it never comes gift wrapped with a bow, but when it all comes together and you feel, well, actually I can take a level of risk here and I can see the behaviors of the founder and all the interactions I've had with the management team are giving me the right signals. And I've debated this with my team. We've put a robust committee paper together and we investment committees, you know, agreed and we've debated. Then that is a, that is a process that is relatively scientific and structured. But ultimately, you're looking for patterns in how, in how you invest. And how many hours do you spend with a founder or management team on average before deciding to invest? Yeah, so that's something across venture capital, I think, um, really differs. My personal experience today is a lot of time. We will often know them from before. We would have taken an interest in the business. I work on um, an accelerator, digital accelerator program. So often I'm in contact with people, ushering them in the direction of the network. So I will often get to know someone. And because I have a genuine interest in them and how healthcare moves, I will spend quite a bit of time just talking to people about their businesses, getting to know them. I like to tell good founders they're fantastic, whether I'm going to invest in them or not, because I believe that we should move forward um, and we should make an impact. And I will have a finite amount of investment I can do, but that doesn't mean that many of these companies shouldn't move forward. What can we do on that side of things to get more venture capital flowing into female founders because it's something that's been talked about a number of times that you know, it depends how you start to cut the figures but basically it doesn't doesn't get much more than about five percent of venture capital funding to uh, female founders how can we improve that so it hasn't been good enough in the industry to just talk about it i think sometimes you can talk about something enough and get enough cultural move that hasn't happened. The, the numbers remain very disappointing. And I think it's, you know, within your architecture, in, in your um, selection criteria and the way you operate, you have to build some of these structures in. Now, for every venture capitalist, that's going to look very different. But for me, one of the important things is calling out bias. And I wouldn't just say that about female founders. I would say that about lots of diversity that we just need to call it out and question ourselves and feel open in our teams and and certainly my team we do you know I've heard things said about all sorts of founders is you know but can that person go and raise this kind of capital later on and I see the process is about us backing them and building them and getting them there as much as we're assessing what they can do at that point in time because businesses and founders are going through a journey so I think there is a, a part of this which is about seeking and exposing and we're doing lots of work, you know, to make sure that female founders know they can come and talk to us. But it's also, you know, sometimes in the background, it's about coaching people perhaps before they're going to another investor, a co-investor or something like that, doing something really meaningful. And then within our selection criteria, bringing up what an advantage it is perhaps to invest in a female founder and there are some cracking businesses coming out that have this lens and ultimately why are those businesses going to do well because women are speaking up women want more technology at their fingertips they are doing things differently um, to men and there is a real space here how that leads me perfectly onto the next question which is um how has the pandemic affected the health tech industry? Because it was quite common sort of early on to say, you know, we'd seen 
six years worth of change and six months and so on. Well, we sit here now kind of, you know, 20 months on from it. And I had a slight theory during the pandemic actually was that you, you would see an initial shoot of innovation, but then actually because everyone was working at home and siloed, you wouldn't get so much kind of cross-pollination of ideas between places and actually in the long term, you might not see as much innovation taking place. So I would be really interested to hear what your views are on what you've seen have been the developments over the last 18 months when it comes to the future of health tech. For me, a lot of it comes down to what we've discussed around adoption of technology. There's, you know, some of the things we see, they're absolutely fascinating. There's no end of invention. And as we go down a deep tech route, we're starting to see even more exciting things where we can bring technology interaction and human interaction together. We can create more accuracy, we can create speed. So I think COVID has allowed us to have this conversation more openly. And I think that appetite to adopt things is probably better. Now, the flip side of this is, and the reality of what is happening in healthcare all over the world is that people are tired, you know, our healthcare workforce is tired and is requiring mechanisms to create resilience. I think that the aftermath of COVID is in fact going to be worse than what we've been through. And I think my colleagues are starting to say some of that. So we know that we've missed a whole bunch of targets on chronic disease. We know potentially we've missed um, cancers. I don't know what those rates will look like. We know that we've we've created more mental health issues and we know we've got long COVID and associated physical health conditions um, coming through. One, I would ask you and I would ask my colleagues and I would ask policymakers that what choice do we have but to bring in innovation that helps us to make how we address these problems more cost effective. So all across the spectrum, whether we talk about digitalizing care pathways that we always already have, whether we talk about earlier diagnosis of cancer, whether we talk about we're now moving into artificial intelligence and imaging so that, you know, we can double read with, a, with software and not just the radiologist. Wherever direction you look, we've got innovation to put there. So what choice do we have when life expectancy is going up, population will eventually go up again? and diseases going up and now we're dealing with the the backlog of covid we don't we don't really have a choice here one of the consequences being to this and you kind of alluded to it with mental health as well is being an over focus on on health and that's some of the challenges that i see with various health tech companies and so on is that just monitoring everything sort of 24 7 now obviously there are specific conditions but it strikes me that there is a real challenge for that about how we get the balance right in a modern world with that. I'd love to hear your kind of reflections on that. I think I can get on board with that if I think about our slot with wearables and the extra added test that we get privately, a view of people that can afford to have out-of-pocket consumer spend on extra parts of their healthcare. But the reality is when people are worried about their health, the socioeconomic impact, the societal impact on that is very high. And that plays out most in deprived communities. So you can see burdens on how they manage their work life, you know, stressful it is to raise families. 
And actually, it's a misconception that if we just improve core healthcare, that we will fix that problem. We won't. We have to look at what that impact is on lifestyle and behaviour. So an organisation I work for, and I'll I'll say this very anecdotally because I didn't look at the data myself, but did a huge amount of evidence on as soon as um, weight shifts up or down, so as soon as body mass index moves up or down, people go and get a GP appointment. That puts burden on the health system. So there is lots of impacts of how we behave in our lifestyle. I think giving people data and the means to understand their health is not going to necessarily increase the impact on healthcare. I think it will reduce it and over a long period of time start to have an impact on how cost efficient we are and and how much technology people are accessing as well. Femtech has become quite a common term in the past few years uh, to denote uh, tech companies' orientation around improving women's health. Why do you think that space has been historically underfunded, not given the attention it perhaps deserves? I think there's probably a few reasons for that. The first is undeniably, you know, the role of women in society and the workplace is evolving and therefore there, that comes with many challenges or competing demands between, you know, life for, uh, with a family and perhaps being having a primary role in that with childcare and and children and then balancing work. I also think pregnancy is a physiological process that many women look where they might have been generational information. Actually, women are now looking at more outwardly and at more scientific information about um, how to get through that. So, you know, your choices around pain relief during labour is discussed with you, whereas I'm not sure that those choices were available. And then I think, you know, platforms like, well, just the internet, but then all of social media is creating a platform for women to voice how they feel and champion things that have been historically very difficult. Breastfeeding, for example, probably has been as difficult 50 years ago as it is today, but more women are going to talk about it. More women have want to have solutions for it. And partly some of that is probably driven by either wanting to get back to the workplace or wanting to get more functional and talking to people about, you know, that. So I think women are sharing their ideas more and therefore looking for more solutions. Um, what do you think we can do around the, the language of, you know, femtech and fertility and, and how... Yeah, does that impact our culture? Because I know you've got a report coming out, which has actually got some amazing statistics in it around how 40% of fertility cases are actually male dominated. And that, that is not something that is necessarily the perception. I've done it myself in this conversation, but reading about it, you talk about femtech and fertility kind of interchangeable. And actually they are linked, but they are separate things. So how can we improve that conversation and the culture around it? I think the first is recognising that these concerns are now more common than they were before. And partly because of the invention of technologies like IVF, more women are having to think about it, right, or have the option to think about it, more couples have the option to think about it. So we are moving into a time where this is, you know, in the same way we talk about mental health and we say, look, one in three people have either suffered depression or, you know, someone in their family with depression. We are now going to get to a point where we're saying, well, actually, you know, one in so forth are having a fertility issue and have concerns. And that's right from the beginning of when is the right time? You know, I'm having 
problems conceiving all the way through to actually full-blown being in a clinic and going through a service. So it is a conversation that is happening. I'm not sure, is it about language or is it about creating open spaces to talk about it? Would others agree with me that it is something that we can talk about openly at work, for example, we can talk openly about in our social circles in a in a kind of open way. Some people choose to, some people don't. Part of that is that there is there can be crushing disappointment at, at various times and the physiological aspects of going through the treatment as well. But I personally think it would be better if we did have more open dialogue about this and make people feel more comfortable about it. There is a great podcast out there called The Big Fat Negative, actually, which does a lot of work around fertility. Um, very interesting, run by two very impressive ladies. So I'll give that, give that a shout out. So one of the areas that when I, I was in government that we were increasing a lot of time and focus on was mental health. And the impact of the pandemic has also pushed us up through the agenda. Everyone, I think, now realizes that mental health is a, is a thing, just like physical health. We're not in kind of peak condition every day. But there is a real challenge, I think, in this, in terms of how much of this is government's responsibility, how much of it is business and employers looking after employees, how much of it is on the personal individual, and how much is it socially as well? You know, how do we join these things up and, and who takes responsibility for what is quite a new set to is the wrong phrase, but a, a, a thing that we've become much more aware of. What are your thoughts on that? So again, I'm going to dodge the question by not choosing my favourite uh, stakeholder that you gave me to take responsibility. I'm going to say all, but let me go through um, in turn. So the, the problem is mental health services are underfunded. That's not a secret. If we don't fix that, we at the illness end of mental health, not the well-being end, but, you know, people who are going into crisis, people who are not able to work, we then see the economic impacts of that anyway. So it is vitally important to make that connection that by keeping people out of severe and enduring mental health crises and keeping people out of the highest level of services where we can is really, really important to how we function all together as, as communities, populations and, and as an economy. So it is right for government to um, spend more time on this. Spend more time doesn't always just mean money, though. We have to make sure that services are effective, that people are well managed and that when they're coming in and out of crisis, that we're monitoring them well and that from a general practitioner point of view, I need downstream services to be able to have the capacity to be more responsive or all the primary care will tell you that today. Primary care sometimes isn't the place to hold these very unwell people, yet we are. Upstream, we need to do more, I think, in teaching and training people around mental health resilience. And I think that needs to start right from school age. And some of that is also thinking about in communities where there may be less ad advantaged households, how do you tackle that problem from a family approach? And how do you take this right through the education system? What do you do at university stage? Because we'll often see people coming through their first mental health issue in their late teens, early 20s. So there is time to interact here. 
And then when it comes to corporates, actually the amount of occupational related stress, anxiety and depression we see is through the roof. And that manifests, frankly, with I'm stressed, I need time off work. Well, everybody's a loser in that situation. So we have to create a way for all stakeholders to be involved in this. But if you're coming back to, you know, how do we do this in the workplace? We have to offer more services, more open dialogue. We have to have training as managers to understand that we can say something and actually how it impacts something. It looks like X or Y. You know, here at Oxford, we have some coaching available. So you can just book in, if you're having a particularly stressful time, you can just book in for an independent coach, totally confidential. And I think that's brilliant. I think sometimes people just need to be heard. They need to air something. They need someone to help them structure how to deal with their thoughts before it escalates into physical symptoms of anxiety um, and low mood. I agree. And you can't see it. Well, I've seen it today uh, in your offices that those signs are everywhere encouraging it as, as well. So you're practicing what you preach and on that regard. We ask all people who come on the show in terms of what their advice would be to the government on how to build back better, because it's a simple phrase and we can all agree with that, but that often means that it doesn't necessarily mean much. And what would your suggestions to the government be about how we can build back better and level up? Well, firstly, I would say it's a great agenda. So part of my interest and background is in population health, and we've seen that play out in COVID. We've seen communities more affected than others, people in others, you know, circumstances more affected. And I think what we have to understand is everything is interconnected. We can't expect people's health to get better, for example, without dealing with some of the employment issues, um, some of the societal challenges, some of the, you know, we've seen lots around food poverty and so forth. So I would like government to help us make the connections and to speak more loudly about how that is all related. The government is trying to, and the NHS is trying to bring policy together to bring health and social care onto one platform. We've seen um, the announcement yesterday um, as well to kind of serve some of these initiatives. But the issue is not the vision, it is the bureaucracy and it is also cycles of change. So just as we're getting in a handle on one policy and making innovation and changing, and getting the budgets around that, we're then changing the cycle and the policy and people are starting again. And we're creating a lot of fatigue for the implementers. So I think it's about, you know, there are some countries who won't plan in three and four year cycles. There are some countries planning much longer cycles. So how can we reduce that bureaucracy and free people to use resources appropriately Every time the policy changes, there is a lot of money that goes into delivering on how that policy should be manifested, but then there's not enough time to actually deliver it and then we're back again. And then, of course, we have our leaves change all the time too, which uh, may be a good or bad thing, I won't comment. But, uh, but you know, the point is, if you constantly keep people in fatigue and change, it's very hard for them to get on board. And do you think we should see more medics and healthcare professionals going into politics as well? Because... There aren't that many at the top of government with a healthcare background. I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer the question. But what I would say is that the medics I've seen support the government, I've been quite proud of them, actually. I felt really proud to be part of the UK, especially with our vaccination rollout. I thought the way that the medics gave information, both 
handled their responsibility to the government, but also to the public to keep the people truthful. And I loved some of the explanations. I loved how people talked about it and took people along on some very scientific matters. So I'm not sure whether they should be in government or not, but they should certainly be surrounding government. Certainly be, yes. Yeah, it uh, definitely has been a moment. Jonathan Van Tan's metaphors and so on. A bit of very uh, useful way of uh, communicating with the public. Is there a favourite book that has particularly inspired you on your business journey that you'd recommend to people? My favourite book is not a business book. It's actually a book by Atul Gawande that actually I think lots of people have read called Being Mortal. And it's it's a very moving book. It's written in a very great way and it's almost split into two parts. But it's this constant reminder in the book and the realisation of how we are as being and the quality of our life and perhaps you know towards the end he also talks about the quality of death and and how we perhaps over medicalize things and how we look at old age and and what aging should be really inspired me so that's probably the go-to book to read for me you just remind me of a funny story that I saw um, at Derby Royal Infirmary. Above the maternity light ward, it had got um, the, the first two minutes of life were the most dangerous. Oh, God. So it scrolled underneath, but the last two were pretty dodgy as well. That's always stayed with me. Really, really too bad. I saw him years and years ago. Oh, God, too funny. Too funny. So, if somebody wants to kind of approach you about funding and so on, just trying to make it open and democratising it as much as we can do. What's the kind of best way of going about approaching you and so forth? So uh, unusual channels, so email or LinkedIn. We also regularly speak to events, so come and speak to us. The whole point of venture capital is to be approachable. So I hope with our brand legacy and ideas and speaking out like this, that there shouldn't be a single founder who feels like they can't come and talk to us. And uh, certainly where we think there are opportunities, but sometimes people are coming to us quite early in their journey, perhaps doesn't fit our funds strategy. That doesn't mean we wouldn't entertain a conversation. So I think everyone should speak up. It really helps us to know what's out there, what we should be looking at, what mindset we should be having. And I really believe in these early relationships. So sometimes we find that founders are leaving it to, you know, six months to fundraise and it's the first time they've turned up. I'd much rather see you well before and get to know you and your business. And as a final question, is there anyone that you'd like to pass the mic to that you think that we should interview on the podcast? So her name is Shannon Shibata Germanos. She's an investor and she also sponsors the UNAIDS Health Investor Exchange, which is bringing together a whole uh, bunch of global investors and to create a conversation about what the interests are um, in global innovation um, and health investing. Brilliant. That sounds fantastic. Pooja, thank you very much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been great to do it in person. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Before you go, I've got a fantastic podcast to share with you. The 40-Minute Mentor with James Mitra. Much like our show, James aims to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs by making mentorship accessible and celebrating the careers of some of the most influential business leaders. If you enjoy Jimmy's Jobs, I think you'll like this show too. 
40 Minute Mentor is now back for their sixth series with amazing new guests such as Dr. Anne-Marie Imaphodon, founder and the CEO of STEMETS and host of the Women in Tech podcast. I also recommend looking through their previous series as I particularly enjoyed listening to the episode with Sir Clive Woodward, England's Rugby World Cup winning coach from 2003, just over the weekend. You can find 40 Minute Mentor on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs, disrupting industries, from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.